Thanks so much for joining us. Well, Andy Lindis has a day off. Denny Long has the day off. But I'm Steve Thompson, Barry Strands in studio today. Barry, uh, finally good to meet you. I've heard you uh, sitting in on the program uh, with Denny Long for years. But uh, here we are in studio. Great to meet you. Thanks, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here again. So they called me yesterday and said, Andy can't make it. Uh, can you come in? I said, of course, I love doing the show. So I yeah. love being useful in some way. And if you've been in the business as long as I have, it's always just like, okay, can I actually help people? I think now because I've made so many mistakes in my career, I know what not to do. And I can give some advice to people who are struggling with stuff themselves. And our number six five one nine eight nine nine two two six, And that's good for the phone call or the text. Six five one nine eight nine nine two two six, and of course, a home improvement show brought to you by Lindus Construction, and of course, the website Lindus L I N D U S Construction dot com, or of course, the phone number there one eight hundred Leaf Guard, and of course, uh, Andy will join Denny at the fair starting next Saturday morning at nine, and continuing for both Saturdays of the fair. Here on CCO, this is prime time in uh, do-it-yourself season. Uh, that that is for sure. A lot of do-it-yourselfers out there. That's right. Trying to squeeze it in before uh, reality is. Well, they're looking in. at the calendar and they're yeah, saying to right. themselves, "You know what? I, I, if I'm going to get it done, I got to get going on it right now." So, absolutely, a good time to be thinking through all kinds of aspects about ordering the work and deciding what you're actually going to try to accomplish. I have a tendency to jump into ten projects at the same time. And I think the creative energy inside of me wants to get everything going at the same time. But the problem is finishing something becomes a challenge. Yeah. And there are guys like me who are out there going, I, you know what? Before I start something else, I probably should finish this and get it all the way done. I teach contractor classes, and one of the challenges there is I ask the guys, in question, what's your house look like? And a lot of guys are like me where they're like, well, I got mine to 90 percent. And then I just kind of went on to something else. And I think it's pretty typical of guys in the construction business. So contractors need to get those little details wrapped up. And anybody who's doing their own work themselves, take a good look around. We always, on the job site where I work for Kyle Hunt and Partners, we end up making punch lists. We go through every part of the job and we actually detail what is not finished. This painting needs to be corrected or adjusted. And this trim carpentry piece didn't get done. That handle is loose. That screw is stripped. You know, and we make a list for everybody in the job site who's been there and make sure all of those little details get completed. Yeah. And the punch list can come in handy for a do-it-yourselfer as well, well because then that way you've got it finite because over time, I've noticed you tend to overlook things yes. and, and you tend to look by them. It's like, well, once upon a time, I meant to do that, but right. I'm okay with it now. <laughs> right. Well, it's the kind of thing where you live in the environment and you don't see anymore the things that aren't complete. So there's a piece of base shoe in a bathroom floor and all the other ones are done. But the one behind the toilet never got done because you didn't know if you're going to cut that into two pieces, but you couldn't get the longer piece back behind it. So it's not done. And everyone, nobody really notices it. But I find that a lot of spouses will tend to notice things like that and go, honey, when are you going to finish that last little thing? And so I think for marital harmony, it's a good idea to make a punch list. You know, uh, the one thing I, I brought up before, and I've I've had a chance to sit in this summer with Andy a few times on the program. Denny's been away, and by the way, Denny Long returns next week along with Andy Lindis here on the program. But and that is, uh, I, I've got a brown treated wood deck. It's still in great shape, but I need to clean it. Yeah, there, there's no doubt about it. it, it it's time. 
What do you do? What don't you do? If that's sure. on your honey-do list, so to speak, to get that deck clean, get it in shape, maybe uh, refinish it, if you will. Well, the question seems to be a, an issue, rather, of, of what's the condition now? Are there any algae growing on that surface? Uh, and the chemical treatments of arsenic that are in there originally, if it goes back before 2003, this, this is relatively if it's new, new yeah. then you're looking at something that's alkaline copper quaternary typically. And that alkaline copper quat typically will kill fungal growth on the surface. But there's a deck brightener that you can buy at any big box home improvement center. And you can brush that or spray that on. And it actually renews wood to its original color. It's going to clean everything up. But power washing oftentimes handles all of the superficial dust and dirt and grime that's on the surface. In one of the classes I was teaching for homeowners who were getting ready to sell their houses, I said, have you ever looked at your own house and just washed your siding? And the student's response was very, very surprising. They were like, what do you mean? My house is, it's my house, it's vinyl or whatever it may be. I said, find an inconspicuous place that you don't walk past on a regular basis. Just get a little bit of Dawn dish soap and a gallon of water and then just begin to wet and rub slightly and you will see that the exterior sidewalls of your house is filthy. And then I identified that if you washed your car as seldom as you wash your house, you wouldn't take your car out into public. Because it would be absolutely covered with this layer of grime. Well, we don't understand our houses do the same thing. Our decks do the same thing. There's this micro dust in the atmosphere that lands on these surfaces, and they're just dirty. And we think rain is going to wash them off. It doesn't. Power washing will. So you can clean those surfaces off and actually get them looking quite nice. People who go to sell their homes could take that step. But just for life, keep things clean and including the exterior surfaces of your home. If you have a treated deck, do, do you necessarily have to refinish it? If you have a little bit of lazy in you and, you know, you kind of clean it off and it's like, yeah, it looks good to me. No, is it necessary? I, I don't think so. Treated lumber is going to hold up just fine over time. The chemical concentrations that we're putting in now are so good that we get a good 25 years out of most chemically treated lumber materials without having to do anything to treat them or retreat them. Uh, if you have something like cedar, however, keeping them clean and actually keeping them covered with a material that will resist ultraviolet light will be ex- extremely helpful. So I put up raw cedar on my own house, and then I finished it with the stain, but I didn't come back you know, three years later and do it again. And what happens is it'll weather. Now it's got that wonderful gray patina, but I live in northeast Minneapolis, and I've just, I'm seeing the weathering of the in-between the annular growth rings in the wood where it feels like it's like almost been sandblasted. It's a cool look, but it doesn't look like it's been a, a brand new deck. And 20 years later, that's what cedar will do. It will give you that look like, hey, this is old, and it can be sanded and refinished. We can stain it, or we can actually apply stain to what's there right now. Or some people even choose to use a pigmented stain that functions much more like a paint, and it'll get into the pores of the wood and resist more effectively. But in any event, you're going to dress that house up. You're going to extend the life of the wood. Every wood material will begin to rot the day after it's installed. When I say rot, it'll begin to deteriorate based on environmental conditions. Without chemical treatment, you're relying on the wood's own internal resistance in order to maintain longevity. So we've got to do some things to help it live longer. And using finishes on the surface, paints and stains are the reason we use those things besides color and 
and the appearance. From our text line at 989-9226, that is 651-989-9226, is there a product you recommend or, or generally the products available at the hardware store or the home improvement store are pretty good? They are pretty good. And the question is what you're, are you going for in terms of repeat maintenance? What are you going for for appearance? Uh, I'm on a project right now where the original call was for an oil-based stain on cedar shakes. And when we put an addition on the house, the discussion was whether or not we needed to do that process, which is more involved. And can we just match the same color and use a latex exterior quality uh, paint? And the paint will hold up just as well as the stain. Uh, what you do is you get a slightly different patina that probably one in 800 or one in 1,000 people would actually recognize and identify. And the people who, who consider themselves perhaps discriminating about finished materials would say, I want the stain finish rather than the paint. But a person who's looking for lower maintenance is going to say, give me the paint. It'll actually behave better. So there really are – it gets complex when you start walking back into all the details. Most of us are going to be fine with using what's over the counter at a big box store. Six five one nine eight nine nine two two six six five one nine eight nine nine two two six, and that is good for our text line or phone calls here on the Home Improvement Show. Brought to you by Linda's Construction. Barry Strands in studio today from our text line. Uh, considering purchasing a home that was built on a concrete slab here in Minnesota, I don't know how rare that is, but uh, what should we look for to ensure? Good construction and long life. Slab homes are relatively uncommon in these They parts. sure are. Now, remember, in Minnesota, we have a required frost depth based on what county you're in in the state of Minnesota. So the northern half, roughly Lake Mille Lacs and north, it's 60 inches of depth required by state law or state code. Anything south of that line to the southern border of the state, we have to be 42 inches deep to meet code requirements. Individual cities have sometimes trumped that requirement and required something a little bit uh, deeper. Frost depth footings are even in place on a slab on grade structure. So we have a slab on grade, but in Minnesota, by code, it has to have footings underneath it. So that would be a garage even, if you will? An attached garage to an existing house would have to have footings, yes. But if it's a freestanding garage, then cities have ordinances, like Minneapolis, that say if you're within this distance of the house, Uh, or someone who might connect it later on, then you'd have to foot it, put it on footings. But if it's far enough away from the main house, you wouldn't be required to do that. All right, so so how would people find out if they're looking at purchasing a home on a slab that sure. was built properly? Well, the whole real role of the home inspector is to help a, a homeowner out with that process. But if you look at any home, it will tell you all of the structural stuff that you need to know from longevity. The older the house is, the more those things become visible. So if I have a house that's 60 years old, I can tell if the foundation's good based on how the walls and the floors are performing. So I don't need really a home inspector in my mind. If I know what I'm looking for, I know if the floor is sagging, if there are issues with a pitch. I tell people, if you're looking to buy a house, bring a marble. Drop it on a hard surface floor and and see if it rolls. Uh. Because you can tell really quickly, really easily, very simply what's happening with floor level. Now, on slab on grades, we presume that they're frost-footed and they're poured flat. But again, it would be a great way to identify that by using something that can roll across the floor and you can see if there's a tilt to the slab, if it's, if it's stayed in place. Then the lumber itself, because those are footed perimeters on the slab on grade, the walls themselves should be fine in terms of being level. 
anything obvious, you begin to look. And some people will bring a, a level with them to check surfaces to see. And then the roof structure, if it's a basic rectangle and you're typically using a gable roof, there's very little that you can't discern based on a fluctuation in the exterior wall by looking at the eave of the roof overhang just past the wall of the house. If that's nice and straight, then we have no problems with wall height and foundation. It all stacks back on the soils. So once we understand that, you can kind of see what's going on relative to how things are for plumb, straight, and square. If that's the case, then you're looking for interior systems, mechanical systems, plumbing, electrical, appliances, to identify what might be right or wrong with those systems. But generally, slab-on-grade construction is tough to screw up. Once the slab is properly footed, everything else works just great. Quick break. We have more with Barry Strands, our home improvement show, brought to you by Linda's Construction, L-I-N-D-U-S, construction.com or at 1-800-LEAVE-CARD. The phone number on our program, 651-989-9226. That's for calls or texts. We have a ton of texts already, and we'll be going to the phone line shortly. Dave and Fridley is uh, waiting on the line. We'll go to Dave in a moment here on the CCO. It is our home improvement show on a Saturday brought to you by Linda's Construction. Denny's away, Andy's away, Barry Strands in studios, Steve Thompson sitting in for Denny Long for one more week. Denny returns with Andy at the fair next week. Let's go to the phone lines. Dave and Fridley. Dave, you're on the air with Barry. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. I have a concrete laundry tub that needs to be refinished. And I'm just wondering what product uh, and how should I go about that? And what about epoxy paint? Um, I, I just saw my mic was off a minute, minute ago. Is there pitting on the concrete itself right now or is it smooth? Surface cement paste on the bottom of the tub has sort of rubbed off in areas. So you have a little bit rougher surface than you do uh, on the walls of the tub. Sure. Uh, boy, I'm. this is something I haven't tackled before, but I'm looking at some of the concrete repair products that are available for a smooth surface floor, and I'm thinking they could be uh, installed across the surface of that as well, up to the drain location. And that would be, um, uh, Kona makes a number of those products and available at the big box stores. I think the question is adhesion to uh, that material. So if there's rust or if there is deterioration on that surface, it would need to be prepped. And I'm just dying to not to be able to tell you what is the best prep material for that before you get a good bond. But if I, my mind is going to concrete sealers in the, in the aisles of big box stores I've been in, and I know that they have a prep chemical that goes on the surface first, then you could put that – a concrete finish, smooth everything back out, and then you would want to seal it. And that concrete sealer is available at the big boxes too. We use it all the time for concrete floor surfaces and driveways and patios and sidewalks. It would be the same basic product that you put on those things that you put on the concrete tub walls and, and, and base. Yeah, and Dave, if, if you decide it's not going to work, I, I know how to buzz those up. Uh, a hammer and a heavy blanket. That's right, yeah. Well, I think there's that's that's the question. I mean, those concrete tubs were really, really durable. My mom had one. The first house I was in had one. And you love using them because you feel like you can't kill them. But at some point, guys will end up taking them out because they're heavy and bulky and end up replacing them with an acrylic tub that you can get at any big box store. But, you know, the question is, uh, is it cosmetic that we're trying to solve or is it the deterioration? I think you could do that. At the end of the day, there's enough expense and work in that. 
I'm probably a sledgehammer guy on that one. And I would replace it with acrylic or fiberglass. You know, those would be the options I would look at. But I think it's fixable. Yeah, Yeah, and the house I had uh, or I have currently built in the 50s, it was the original concrete tub down in the laundry room. And finally we got rid of it. It was actually kind of a fun project. A lot of work hauling those chunks out. Those tubs are heavy. <laughs> it, it was the number of trips out the back door yeah, with that thing. It's yeah. nutty. I did a, a cast iron tub I had to take out of a house. And oh. the lady said, I want you to take it out in one piece because I don't want you to get injured. I said, no, 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 I'll sledgehammer this. And she's like, no, 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 one piece. It's like I couldn't find enough labor to move it out. So when she wasn't there one afternoon, we broke it up, took it out. And that way she didn't notice that it was, a, yeah. it was, it was just gone. Oh, how'd you get out? Oh, we took it out. It's gone. Yeah. Right, we got it out. Doesn't matter how. Uh, Bill and Victoria, you're on the air with Barry Strands on our home improvement show. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. I've got a house, a wood frame house built in 86, so it's a little over 30 years old. And on one wall of my garage, it's just a one-level garage with a peak roof, but on one wall, I can stand there and see that that wall is bowing inward. Um, maybe just a couple of inches, but I can see it bows inward. And I'm wondering, what issue? Do I have to worry about it? What do you think is causing it? So I just want to make sure I'm clear. It's not the wall between the house and the garage. It's one of the perimeter garage walls, and there's nothing else beyond that. It's just open space, right? Exterior wall? Yeah, that's correct. Sure. And the... Um, the only other question I have in my mind is whether that if you see a peaked roof, is it coming? Is the roof coming up from all four sides, like a, we call it a hip roof, or is it coming up from just two? What we call it a gable roof. Gabled roof. Okay, yeah. so are the trusses from that '86 build sitting on the wall that's bowed, or are they resting? Is uh, it the other wall? My guess is it's the other wall. We call it the gable end wall, and that's the wall that's bowed. My guess is that's correct. It's the sure. end of the gable. Okay, that's not structural in any way. Uh, basically what happens is if that wasn't braced correctly when that house was built, that wall can kick in. So honest to goodness, if you get up in that attic space, you could take a jack against the existing trusses. You take the trusses and you actually tie them off with two by six nailed to each all the way back to the end of the house where the house and garage wall meet. And then you could push that wall back into plane. I mean, you know what I mean? You can push it back in using a little jack and get that wall straightened out and then add another two by six across the top of that gable end truss, tie it back into the trusses you just supported, and you can straighten the wall. Now, you probably want someone who's done that before, but it isn't structural. That's a non-load-bearing wall location. It just picks up the gable end weight. doesn't pick up the structural load. Okay, Bill. Uh, good luck with that. Quick break. We have more with Barry Strands in our home improvement show brought to you by Linda's Construction. We have Jerry and Mark waiting. We're going to go to the text line as well. Here's our number, 651-989-9226. That's good for a call or a text. It is our home improvement show. Saturday is between 9 and 10. Denny Long, Andy Lindis at the State Fair. The next two Saturdays, we got Barry Strands in studio today. I'm Steve Thompson sitting in for Denny for one more week. 651-989-9226. 651-989-9226. And that's good for uh, phone calls and texts. So keep that in mind. Uh for all our programs here on CCO, 651-989-9226. And, of course, the Home Improvement Show brought to you by Lindus Construction. All right, to the phone lines we go. Jerry in St. Paul. Jerry, you're on the air. Hello. Hi, hello there. Uh, Barry, I live in a 1914 home. It was actually moved to a new 
basement new cement block foundation in 1940. And some of the floors and windows and doorways are way out of level. So my question is, do you think that in 1940 they would have put footings under my basement slab? Because I don't know where the crookedness is coming from. All right. There you go. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm fighting a little. No red button on my microphone. Jerry, the issue is a question that uh, you're right at the transition time in the 40s between when we went to footies, footings and no footings. So it's hard to know for sure whether you have footings underneath there or whether they laid the block directly on dirt because that's what we did once we moved out of stone foundations. We moved into block foundations that were directly laid on dirt, and then we moved into footings. And footings show up by the end of the 40s and early 50s. Footings became commonplace because of the problems you're describing. And based on what you're telling me about the windows and things being out of plumb, out of level, my guess is you haven't got a footing. That's just my best guess. Now, the one way to check that surface is to get a laser level. And lasers are fantastic because you can shoot them across an entire floor surface and check to see where things are in terms of heights and and relationship to heights. But typically, when you look at the floor surface up above where you've got framing and windows and those things being out of square or or, – kind of kittywampus, as I would describe it. You can check that by identifying what's happening on the foundation surface. So in my mind, it's one way to identify. And if it's all over the map, or you have high spots and low spots all around, really the high likelihood is you haven't got a footing underneath. And uh, I would assume absolutely prohibitively expensive to uh, remedy that problem. I mean, I... It it's, sounds- well, when we say prohibitively expensive, it depends on the house, how we love it, all of those experiences. Sure. Yeah. The, challenge, the challenge is today, if you had a footing underneath it, you would come in with a helical jack and you could take a low spot and lift it up with a helical jacking sure. system. But without any footing, you can't lift a section of the wall. So it becomes a much more problematic uh, scenario to try to address. And in my mind, probably is it worth it? It's going to be one of those houses where you're going to say, yeah, it, it, you could do something with this, but unless you get something underneath there, you can't level the whole surface or whole wall section together. All right, let's go to Mark in Bloomington. Mark, you're on the Home Improvement Show brought to you by Linda's Construction. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I have a, a question, and I just wanted to know your uh, feedback on staining concrete versus painting and if you think there's any kind of future in prefabricated concrete concrete wall houses and garages in Minnesota. Okay, so Mark, where are you looking at staining versus other another option? What location? Um anywhere, any concrete, any you know, Okay, sure. brick instead of painting brick or even staining driveways like what? What's your opinion on that? Do you think it's cost effective and compared to other things? Well, the challenge is to know what we're after. If it's something cosmetic, and we look at concrete, obviously you can colorize concrete. But acid etching stain systems in concrete are fantastic. But again, they have to be if they're exterior application. Then we're looking at ultraviolet radiation and the breakdown of color detail. The concrete patinas that are available today to make extraordinarily gorgeous surfaces basically paints that stick to the concrete and stay stuck to the concrete are amazing. I subscribe to concrete newsletters and every month I get new pictures of what people are doing with concrete and it's it's awesome. It really is crazy. So there's acid etching stains. There are also topical paints for concrete and I don't know that it matters to me 
about what would be best. And I think that it's all about the aesthetic, the intention, and the and longevity. And where we use it, I find that people are using multicolored acid etching stains in interior applications, and they're just fabulous. And because there's no ultraviolet, they last forever. The color will stay in the concrete and last. And, and in terms of concrete structures, yeah, we're using those in commercial applications all the time. The challenge is to find precast concrete foundations. We can do those, those superior wall systems, that's what they do. It's a precast concrete finish dropped in by a crane, breaks the foundation. But going above grade with that still creates, in Minnesota's climate, some energy concerns relative to thermal performance and efficiencies. So it all depends on how we view that. So in warmer climates, concrete and steel structures for residential high-end homes are becoming normal. In Minnesota, we're still fighting the insulation issues. Yeah, in uh, other parts of the country, termites, all of those sure. sorts of things, uh, pays big dividends down in Florida. Uh, concrete homes, uh, hurricane resistance, Absolutely. all of those sorts and of things. And fire for California. Yeah, there you go. Right, so we're looking at those things and saying in other parts of the country, based on need, that's driving installation, and we're responding to both aesthetics, longevity, but also a need of a local environmental concern. Yeah, but hot summers, cold winters, yep. that is a huge challenge for yep. those products. It is. And, you know, when you think about thermal massing, you talk about concrete being able to hold heat that's been put into it by solar radiation or by houses, heating systems, and then the, the ability – I can't hear myself – the um, ability of the foundation to hold and then re-release that as it cools down at night. It ends up being an option that's great. However, we still have to fight – the overall issues of a, let's say, a minus 30 winter. Very, very difficult to manage. Let's go to Rick and Blaine. Rick, you're on the air. Thanks so much for joining us on the Home Improvement Show. Okay, thanks a lot, Barry. My question is on whether I tried this or not. Uh, I've had a, you know, the the crack between the garage uh, and the garage apron, the cement sure. apron in front, yeah. and it's got an expansion um, strip or whatever that, that's got for lack of better. But anyway, it's growing and and I guess my question is do I uh, do I do something or attempt to do something with that or is that best left to a, you know, professional that's done it and what can I expect to pay? Uh the good question. Number 1, <laughs> it, it's it's in the realm of a, a DOI or DIY or skill set. It's not complicated. And there's a number of videos that you can pick up off of YouTube that would show you the process of running back a rod in and Volcom. So I, I think it's well, it's, it's fairly, fairly straightforward. And I'm just looking at the price tag of having a pro come in and do it. They'll charge you way more than the work is worth is what I think. Uh, but uh, finding somebody who wants to come over and tackle that, the problem is I don't know anybody who's actually going to guarantee that it won't move down the road. So you're going to get someone to do the same thing that you would do, but without a guarantee, and you'll pay probably four or five times what I think that a person should charge you. If they charge you hourly at 50 bucks an hour, they got to charge you a trip charge. they got to go pick up materials. got to charge you for that, all of those kind of things that we would do themselves. And then normally uh, they're going to give you a fee based on hourly work. Uh, you know, i got a plumber who charges $235 an hour, and you've got a concrete guys, and they're not coming out for less than 100 bucks an hour because they're not going to take the time. So it ends up being something that, that in my mind, I'd try tackling it. Worst case scenario is you'll spend a little bit of money, and if it's not great, you can now hire a pro to come in and fix it. 
Now, you, you brought it up back or rod, if you will. What What, what is that? Yeah. We, we talked during a break, ironically, about something similar I have yes. going on. I have a slab over an old pump room yep. and then the sidewalk at the front of the house. And there's a gap that's over time started to form. Sure. And that uh, filler piece, that, that fibrous piece is sunk. Mm-hmm. Um, Expansion joints basically yeah. are fiberboard, that black yeah. fiberboard that is used to allow concrete as it warms to grow. Because remember, concrete's dynamic thermally. So that's why we see sometimes when it gets really hot outside, we'll hear some note on the news that some portion of the freeway has popped. We've had this lift because concrete's growing and the expansion joint can't handle it. Concrete's got to go someplace, and so it'll, it'll actually ridge and pop up at the joint location. So expansion joints are important, but they'll deteriorate over time. So typically what we do is we seal that space to keep water out. Water, again, is the great nemesis of keeping houses in good shape over time. And backer rod is basically foam rope. It's really what it is. And you go to any home improvement center, and in the weather, weatherization section, typically, you'll find these different sizes from quarter inch on up in eighth inch or, th- or quarter inch increments. And you find the size that's just slightly larger than the crack you have. You lay that rope in, tuck it down there, just poke it in with your finger, and then come across with a, a good polyurethane caulking material. And that ends up working really, really well. It keeps moisture out of that space, which is what's moving your concrete around in the first place. Now, ideally, we had all of our concrete slab work on sub-bases and sand beds or rock beds that would allow the water to drain. We wouldn't have a water heave issue. We wouldn't have freeze-thaw cycles because so, we got the water away. But generally, we don't build them that way because it takes too much time and costs too much money in a place where we expect slab-on-grade construction to be serviceable. It's not long-term, but it will work just fine for 15 or 20 years, well after the builder's gone on to some other project. And, Barry, it's one of those things where you, you can find that bead and that caulk. At, yes, every home, at the hardware store. Every hardware store, big box stores, they all carry them. Yeah. All right. 945 here at CCO. Uh, let's go to the phone lines again here on the Home Improvement Show. Brought to you by Linda's Construction. That's L-I-N-D-U-S construction.com or at 1-800-LEAVE-CARD. Andy will be joining Denny Long at the fair next Saturday. Let's go to Kurt in Stillwater. Kurt, you're on the air with Barry. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, guys. Hi, guys. Say, um, I've got a 12 by 16 shed that uh, has, over the years, it's, it's sunk. It's sort of on a clay bed. Uh, it had um, basically a wood floor in it, and that floor rotted, and I took it out, and it's been sitting on these uh, concrete blocks that are just in the corners, but the blocks are basically below grade at this point. And so I'm going to be jacking that building up and kind of redoing the, you know, the sill plates and stuff like that. And I'm trying to decide what kind of a base to put down that would give it some, you know, some firmness so it doesn't sink so much. And then also to get you know, keep the water out. So one of the big questions I've got is how do you keep the water, the moisture out of there when you've got like a, a dirt floor? That's, it's got a dirt floor right now. Sure. So I'm thinking about down class five, uh, but then I still think moisture is in there. So how do you keep moisture out of the shed is one of my big questions. And what kind of base would you put down 12 by, uh, 12 by 16 shed? Well, it's a good question, but keep in mind that if you don't stop moisture from the ground coming up from underneath – you're going to always have excess humidity there. And if you're in a low spot in the lawn, you're going to have topical runoff coming in there, wetting your, sur- your surface. If you really want to keep water out of the shed, I really do think you're looking at a concrete floor. I know that's 
crazy expensive by comparison to other options, but that's what you're going to need if that's what your goal is. So if you're going to be putting class five or like a river rock or something like that down, all of those things would, would work in some sense to keep you above the elevation of soils, but they're not going to keep it dry inside because you're going to be fighting all of the ambient moisture that's coming up from the dirt below. So we put six mil polyethylene plastic down underneath concrete floors in basements today by building code for that very reason, because even concrete slabs can wick water through them. Now, they don't wick a lot, but they can. So having something underneath that's actually impervious to water is essential. And the problem, of course, is there's no quick and easy solution to doing that. You could look at building a treated wood base and creating a base out of two-by-six treated lumber around the perimeter. That would be worky to get underneath the existing building. But if you jack that up and put that up on some blocks, it certainly would be doable. And that way, if you're rebuilding the sill as well, you could put a new base underneath there of treated lumber. But uh, if you don't want to go to the expense of a concrete floor, I don't have a really good solution to keep it, keep it out of there. I wish I did. I just don't. Yeah, well, yeah. Your your poly your poly uh, point was right. What I was wondering is if you could put poly underneath, like say the class five. Sure. Then it seemed to me that as you were tamping down the class five, like you'd be breaking holes in in the poly. You know. Well, the there's yeah maybe you would be breaking some holes in that, but class five has got enough fine materials within it that you would be able to create a denser base and you'd have a few perforations. But if you had 85% coverage, you're blocking quite a bit of the water from the soils coming up into that space. It's way better than not doing anything at all. So think of it from the perspective of how much minimization you're creating. You're lessening the amount of water. You're not keeping maybe all of it out because you would have some holes. But some is better than nothing. That's what I'm thinking. Quick break. We have more with Barry Strands. It is our home improvement show brought to you by Linda's Construction, L-I-N-D-U-S, construction.com or at 1-800-LEAVE-CARD. And he has a day off. Denny has a day off. They'll be back at the fair next Saturday between 9 and 10 here on the CCO. Home Improvement Show, Barry Strands in for Andy Lindis. Home Improvement Show with Denny Long and Andy from the fair, brought to you by Lindis Construction each and every week here on CCO. Uh, we've had a ton of calls, ton of texts on the program. Let's get to some of those texts if we can here at the end of the program. Time's really tight. The That's hour's right. gone quick, Barry, uh, for sure. Uh, let's get started with this one. Can you power wash a stucco home? You talk about you know, cleaning that vinyl siding sure. and other surfaces, is it okay to gently power wash stucco? Well, when we say gently power wash, we mean that the PSI that we're using on the machine has to be turned down to the lowest setting. So, yes, I argue it is. Uh, be careful and then look for any signs of deterioration in the stucco where there might be some issues. You could be actually making a bigger problem that you'll have to patch when you're done. But if your stucco's intact, you can power wash stucco. All right, stucco, uh, what about a crack from our text line here? I have a small crack crack. How do I fill that? Can I just use regular caulk? Well, when you say regular caulk, if you walk into a home improvement center, you'll see that there's like six different brands. And then there's of those brands, you know, each brand's got five different types of caulk. So the key is to understand that there's movement in stucco. There's an adhesion issue in stucco. And for my money in terms of price, a polyurethane sealant is probably still your best option and find one that's color matched close to the finish, unless you're planning to paint the stucco, which again, stucco people don't recommend, but you could redash. That's what they think. However, there's acrylic paints that work perfectly for stucco today. So 
So there's a lot of options. I think you can caulk that hairline crack or small crack just fine with a polyurethane-based caulk. And is it important to do that if you have a crack and it, you're stucco? Yeah, that, the question is if the backing paper behind the stucco, today code requires double D paper behind all stucco. It has a rating for both vapor passage and moisture resistance. When that's done, that's actually what's keeping the water out of the home. So the stucco is our exterior cladding, but it's not the thing that is functioning to keep water out. So a hairline crack that might let water in isn't really going to be a problem in the way we think of it being, oh, water will get into my house now. But a bigger issue, in my mind, they should be maintained so they don't get larger. Water gets in that space, and it could be trapped in that space. In the winter condition, as it expands, it can push things around. So I would argue, yes, caulk the cracks. All right, leveling a driveway, mud jack, sand jack, or foam jack, what do you think? Um, That's one that's tough. I need to see what's at the perimeter of the driveway to give a better suggestion. All of those have been used, and all of those could be used. I haven't priced foam jacking, so I can't really help you with what would be most expensive there. I wish I knew that, but I haven't looked at that in repair work. When we do most of those things or things like that in our project, we typically rip the concrete out and start all over again because our consumers would not allow us to have the holes from the mud jacking or the sand jacking process. But if you're okay with the cosmetics, all of those can work fine, but you're needing to have a perimeter that will hold or seal that source of injection. And uh, you can actually rent equipment that will do that material process yourself. I wouldn't recommend it because if you screw that up, you can end up with a big, big mess. Uh, but it is one of the options, and I just don't have a price information to be useful there. I say you price it out, decide what works best, but in my mind, all of them can be used effectively. All right, time is tight at the end of the program, but someone wants to take layers of old paint off cabinets. What should they be concerned about? Well, there's a couple of things to be aware of. Anything pre-78, you risk lead. So I would argue that you should do a lead test first all the way down to the base layers of paint. And if it's a homeowner doing the work, there's no requirements of federal law. But if it's a contractor doing work, there's federal law that gets involved on pre-78 stuff to test for lead or assume lead's present. So in that scenario, we just have to be so careful about that process. But if it's, it's later than that or more recent than that, and that's not a concern, there are two options. You can strip them or you can sand them. And typically when you strip them, you still have to sand them. So I don't like that process. And people I've talked to who have stripped to get to the wood underneath and then make, stain it and make it pretty, they've all sworn the same thing. I'll never do it again. Yeah. My recommendation, Steve, is that you replace those doors with doors you really want to see when you're finished and yeah. not go through the process. It's a huge, huge hassle, especially if there's any kind of raised grain or panel on the door. Getting into those little crevices and cracks is utterly um, annoying in terms of how much time it takes. Well, Barry, it's been great. Good to meet you. Thanks so much for joining us. Barry Strands uh, sitting in for Andy Lindis here on the Home Improvement Show, brought to you by Lindus Construction, L-I-N-D-U-S Construction.com or 1-800-LEAF-GUARD. It's been a pleasure, Barry. Thanks, Steve. All right, there he is. Once again, Barry Strands uh, in studio from time to time here on the Home Improvement Show here on CCO.